Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the show, I welcome Dave and Steve Flynn, better known as the Happy Pair. Now, these vegan entrepreneurs first met as womb mates. Okay, dad joke alert. But yes, they are identical twins who at the age of 24 decided to start a fruit and vegetable shop in their hometown of Greystones, located just south of Dublin, Ireland. Well, Fast forward to 2022, and the Flynn brothers have over 60 vegan products in thousands of stores across Ireland and the UK. They have a cafe, an organic farm, a coffee roastery, a sourdough bakery, and they've sold over a quarter million cookbooks around the world. They've partnered with a host of plant-based doctors and nutritionists to release seven online courses addressing some of my favorite topics like cardiovascular health and gut health. But perhaps their greatest achievement is they love what they do. Their energy is simply infectious and they really personify happiness and consider happiness and health to be synonymous. So in our discussion, I try to crack the Flynn code for happiness by exploring the five core components to well-being, movement, restoration, nutrition, purpose, and community. Now, this episode was a lot of fun to record, even though I wasn't always sure which Flynn was speaking. But happily, we'll be featuring Happy Pair content on Commune later in the year. For now, please enjoy my conversation with Dave and Steve Flynn. Dave and Steve Flynn, the happy pair. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, yes. Jeff. It's an honor. Great to be with you. Okay, so for my audience who are, for some reason, unknown to anyone, not acquainted with the happy pair, you guys are identical twins. Is that correct? Yeah, we're identical twins. We're 42 years old. 
we were part of a twin study back, it could be 10 years ago now. And uh, it's they, like three they, years. It feels like three years, but they had 60 sets of identical twins, 60 sets of non-identical twins. It was a study done in University College Dublin, so locally, and they wanted to see the nature versus nurture. And they put us all, like mm. they tested us for hours, like multiple times. And um, yeah, we were the most identical set of them. We were like mirror twins. So we were 99.9999 recurring percent genetic identical material in a weird weird way i have three children he has two children and if they were to check who was do a paternity test we're both we're fathers to them all which is a bit weird but um, yeah it sounds weird (laughs) but that's modern science i'm sure they could figure out a way to find out who's who's, i don't know well it does take a community and i have an uh ulterior theory about your genetic similarity is that well, I think identical twins, I believe, is a result of the fertilization of a single egg that splits in two. Yeah. Um, so you already got that going for you. But my sense is that you guys have the same diet, so you probably have identical microbiome. Um, mm. And, uh, of course, the mi- we have about 20,000 genes, more or less, and but the bacteria in our guts, there's about 1.6 million genes in there. So if you're sharing those as well, that's got to make you the most genomically similar people world over. <laughs> Except I could challenge that. I could challenge that because I know a friend is, uh, he did a master's or a doctorate in, in like, you know, all that kind of microbiome and, you know, micro microbiology and whatnot. And he was saying that even us being genetically identical, he said, we will be more identical to our partners who we live with and share the same environment with on a much more regular basis, like sleep with and spend hours with and are intimate with, like we're much more likely to have the same microbiomes as them as we are one another, which I thought was very interesting. There you are. There it is. Yeah. I've heard that as well, that yeah, we share more genetic makeup as it pertains to our bacteria with the people that we live with versus like our parents, for example. Well, my dad has a hard time getting his head around that. He doesn't like that idea at all. <laughs> um, but um, all right. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking you guys possess two secrets that have evaded humankind for millions of years. All right. Ooh, one, this, this is good. Okay. One, how to be happy. All right. And two, what to put in our mouths. We still haven't figured these things out. So um, my goal over the next uh, 75, 90 minutes, whatever we have, is to pry these keys to these riddles from the Great Irish fog at all. To the, from the Irish it. fog of Greystones. Um, <laughs> but let's build the suspense a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that you could build the scaffold of our conversation um, with a bit of your biography of how you guys came to be the happy pair. Okay, cool. So I met Steve in the womb. Hey, that was a good one. Woo-hoo. Okay, that was all. Uh, yeah, go. so we grew up in a small little town in Ireland. It's called Greystones. It's 20K south of Dublin and grew up in a family of all boys. So four boys. You know, we're 42, so born in 1979. And, uh, you know, Ireland was very much, being a product of four boys, it was, we were very competitive, you know, super competitive because, and being an identical twin, you're even more competitive because you're competing for attention and love every, and you're competing for your dinner. 
and you're competing for the last fold of this and the last suite and your clothes and everything every day. So you're like, we are hyper competitive. So by the time, like we were teenagers, you know, say we were 17, 18, we were playing semi-pro rugby. We were both off scratching golf. We had played baseball for Ireland. We were, you know, we played every game under the sun. And, you know, at that stage we were quite interested, you know, obviously we were attracted towards like we're both heterosexual. So we were attracted to women. So, we went to all boys schools and you got great social credit when you kissed a pretty girl. So we were, that was kind of part of our, part of our sporting endeavors, our sporting endeavors as well, you know? So we were, we were hyper competitive. And then by the time we finished school, I remember we didn't really care. Like we didn't, we hadn't really thought about anything, what we wanted to do other than. No, I'd, say, I, I'd change that. I'd say we were quite disconnected. We really didn't know what we were interested in because we'd learned how to pass mm. exams. We'd learned how to excel at sport and we'd learned how to, you know, party and kind of meet women and, you know, progress that. So university was kind of like, I don't know what I'm into. Dad, what do you think? Business. Okay, great. Yeah, that sounds like a good practical thing. And I just want to go to college because there's more girls in college than there is in an all boys school. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so so we both ended up studying business uh, in separate uh, universities because um, I didn't get as many points as him. Otherwise, oh. we would have been sitting beside one another. But uh, so we went. We studied business, and certainly when we studied it, there was an underlying theme of you know in business it was like if you make loads of money, then you're going to be happy, and that was the kind of subtext. And I remember at the time, like both me and Steve were about like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a stockbroker and I'm going to make like millions by the time I'm 30. And then I'm going to take up, then I'm going to play tennis in Wimbledon. And then I'm going to like- I'm going to do what I like then. Yeah. Then I'm going to like, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And that was the kind of subtext which we both had gone on. And then by the time we kind of come into our final year and finishing business, we both had lost, like we just didn't believe it anymore. We just didn't believe that, you know, money and- capitalism was and the American dream. The American dream just didn't seem like the, we, we both were starting to feel like there's something else here. There's something more in here. So I remember we finished university and Steve just kind of says to me, he says, Dave, Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm going away. I'm going away traveling. You're not coming with me and I'm not coming back till I'm happy. So, like, <gasps> oh, so what's that, Steve? Oh my God. You know, because obviously we sat beside one another. We shared a wardrobe literally every day of our lives. We, you know, we hadn't really spent any time apart and he had this idea gone off by himself. So he ended up going off to Canada. He went off to Whistler. I largely went to Whistler because I remember watching videos and it seemed like there was loads of parties, loads of pretty women. And I thought, great, we were born in Canada, so we had Canadian passports. I was like, great, what a wonderful place to start with. Um, and over the next couple of years, we kind of traveled and, you know, this is back pre-social media. We didn't, we didn't have a mobile phone. So it was quite anonymous when you traveled. So you had the great social fluidity to like, we grew up in a small little town, you know, everyone kind of knew us. You kind of had your specific role. You know, at the time we were jocks, we played rugby, we were high achievers. We went to university, we were going places. And then when I arrived in Whistler, suddenly no one knew me. So it was like, great, I wonder who I'll be now. So I remember, I remember kind of going... Like there's loads of parties and loads of beautiful people. And it's like, I've done that. I don't want to do that. So I remember I got a job, ironically, up the mountain, flipping burgers in a burger jar, burger bar. But after work, every single day, I get into the library in Whistler, which was a small little library. And there were vegetarian cookbooks. And I was just fascinated. I used to pour myself into vegetables. And I got to know a few other nerds that were into cooking with vegetables. And we'd have a vegetable potluck. And I remember I used to hitchhike for a couple of hours down to the local town down the road. Um, and I remember I'd buy barley and I'd bring it back home and I'd be, I can't wait to try barley. This is going to be the most <laughs> like, mind-blowing thing I've never tried. And I taste this like, I just taste like rice. But it was like part of this culinary adventure. <laughs> 
And kind of we both independently of each other. Day, sorry, yeah, yeah. Pepper and so uh, I ended up, I went to, like he went off by himself. So I went off to South Africa to go be a golf pro and tried that for a little bit. And this is like back when we were 21, so 20 years ago. And I realized that, ah, oh, there must be more to life than golf. You know, I found it quite lonely and I feel like there's, there's much more going on here. But we ended up for the next two years, we kind of traveled separately, really exploring what else life had on offer. And as Stephen said, we weren't kind of held in boxes, you know, because there was no social media, there was no mobiles, there was no real email. So we were free. We were completely free to kind of follow our curiosities and kind of break down our own social conditioning, which we had. So we ended up, you know, spending lots of time in farms and food. You know, we changed our, like, as, as he said, we left, we were kind of, semi-pro athletes that were into burgers and drink and getting drunk and parties and kind of meat and two veg. This was kind of the diet we were, we were yeah. reared on. And then while traveling, we both immediately kind of something shifted, a seismic shift happened that we, we gave up alcohol. Yeah. We, we gave up alcohol just before we left. Mm. We ended up, we were running a marathon and we gave it up for a couple of weeks. And then that couple of weeks ended up being a couple of months. And then we ended up going traveling and, I guess we started feeling more ourselves and it was the same over the next couple of years while we were away on this journey of self-discovery, we ended up changing our diets. We both stopped buying meat, stopped eating meat, stopped eating dairy and got much more curious into spirituality. You know, we started into be passionate meditation. We ended up going to these centers and meditating and polyamorous, egalitarian, feministic community. We ended up in all sorts (laughs) of crazy, curious, different places. And it was really like, I, mean, I remember I lived in a cave behind a waterfall in a cloud forest in Costa Rica for a bit. So why wouldn't you? You know, we were trying all sorts of weird things and fasting and all sorts of different things anyway. And then anyway, one day Steve calls me up. This is 2003. And he says, Dave, 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 Dave I got this idea. Do you want to like start a food revolution? And this, this was his words. And I go, revolution. Oh, Steve, Yes. And I thought like in my head, I was thinking like Che Guevara and like, you know, we're going to storm the parliament. We're going to like, we're going to overthrow things. This is going to be so exciting stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. And then he says, uh, do you want to start like a, like a vegetable shop, Dave? And it was like, (laughs) you said revolution and vegetable shop in the same sentence, Steve here. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite getting you, but of course I'm your twin. Of course I'm in like, yeah, let's do it. Um, So we ended up kind of coming back, like we left as these two jocks that were quintessential, you know, meat and two veg, rugby players, you know, short back and sides, a hair. And then we came back two years later as these two guys with long hair and beards and plaid pants and polyester shirts that painted their fingernails and swam in the sea, strong strong offensive body odors, didn't drink alcohol. We're now vegan and starting a vegetable shop. And this is in a small town, so people... People obviously thought we were weirdos. We'd lost our way. And there was kind of an underlying theme in the community that they're definitely selling drugs at the back. Uh, obviously, we weren't. But there was, you know, you'd hear these whispers. So uh, that was, that mm. was uh, obviously, we weren't. But this, this was 17 years ago. This is 2004. We started, um, started a vegetable shop. And we, we ended up calling it the Happy Pear. But I remember... Why did we call it the Happy Pear, David? Great question, Stephen. Mm. Thank you. Uh, we ended up... Because, like... The name Stephen wanted to call it, um, I remember the sign man, this is November the 26th, 2004, the sign man, Declan, he was up on a ladder trying to put put the name that we wanted on the sign above the shop. 
And um, he's up the ladder and he's trying to put them on and we're sitting back proud as pie, like leaning against the car, looking at the shop front, like delighted with ourselves. We're going to have a shop. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, Declan comes down after about 20 minutes and he says, lads, like, it's just your your name's too long. Like, you're going to have to change it. It just won't fit properly. And we ended up calling it the happy pair because there was two of us and we were selling fruit and like happy pair was like a pun. But the name Stephen wanted to call it, like our surname is Flynn. And he, the name that Declan was trying to fit in the sign and Stephen wanted to call it was Flinner's Fruit and Veg for Social Change. So, so, so that was the context that we started a vegetable shop with. It was like we started a vegetable shop to change the world, to try to inspire more people to eat more fruit and veg and to kind create of promote a movement, more, to, to kind create of promote a more happiness and connection in the world. We kind of, we had kind of gone, we'd found through our own journeys that we felt more connected. We felt more whole. We felt more like, and diet had a significant, it was a wonderful entry point for people to kind of connect with their food, connect with their community and find more joy and happiness. Yeah. So we mm. started with a vegetable shop and then it's been 17 years where it went from two of us to where you know, we've had 250 people on our team at one stage and passed over 10 million in revenue. We did one of the years, but cafes. now it's like it's changed and evolved to where there's all sorts of bits of the business. But, but I guess at a top level, we have at the moment now, pre-COVID, we had four cafes. Now we have one cafe. We've kind of learned that sometimes less is more. So we've one cafe that we're really pouring our heart into. We've a lot of we have seven online courses where we eat 50,000 people through and they're wonderful and we love and that aspect. food products, we have 60 food products, vegan, plant-based food products in a thousand stores in Ireland. So. And then we've written uh, five Cook best-selling cookbooks. Yeah. So, so, yeah. I can't wait to get some of these products over to the United States. I, I think they're in the UK now, right? But I, I don't believe that they've made it across the pond. And I was going through the suite of products and there are many. And I was uh, salivating last night. Um, all of those sauces and that bur those burgers, those veggie burgers look fantastic. Pestos, pestos, yeah. Pestos are the ones that I think. Yeah, there's lots of good ones. Anyway, we, we've had fun over the years. And you, how, how into the the recipe making and tasting and, and kitchen work do you guys get into? Are you guys have your I hands was in there this morning there? at ten past five? So yeah, like, <laughs> nice. And we're right now in the studio. So you, we've gone through phases. Like for the first maybe ten years, we were like in the kitchen every day and in the trenches, in the trenches, leading the army, and it was such fun and adored it. And then kind of after our first book came out, it kind of led us more into kind of media and more into YouTube and more into trying to inspire people to eat more fruit and veg. And we kind of felt, this is our calling. I love this. The mission. Vegetable missionaries. And then it's only really yeah. in the last year, I'd say. Last two years. But no, I'd say it's the last year. Well, maybe the last two years, but in particularly the last year, like COVID and the pandemic has kind of encouraged us more in terms of our physical presence. Like we had four cafes, now we have one. And it's kind of forced us to really focus on trying to build one holy mountain. And like, if we do, like... Often, you know, yourself when you have a business, you're kind of expecting others. The new white hope is going to come in and they're going to fix it all. And then you realize you're kind of the heart of the business, you know, because we started it and we're kind of a huge driving force of it. And, you know, food is the very soul of our business. And it's kind of taken the last number of probably, I don't know, eight months we've been in the kitchen every day. And it's, I love well, it. You, I have in particular, and I love it. I love it. And trying to build a team. And we started a sourdough bakery almost two years ago now and I adore that and anyway having a great time with it so but we're very still, involved we're still yeah the food bit is fun like particularly the products bit because there's 
We've got an NPD team, which is new product development. And Sean will work very much in terms of like, you know, all the ingredients that the ideal ones, and then you've got to put it into, can it be sold at a certain price? And how do you get the shelf life and the packaging? So there's, there's a, a whole sequence, like writing a recipe that tastes good is the easiest thing in the world. But then you've got all these various steps that when it goes through all the various phases, does it still taste really good? That's the hard bit. And last can we get shelf life? life? Can we get packaging? Can we get, you know, where all the, and the, the costing and all the various things within it. So it's, it's a fun game. Yeah. I think we'd actually enjoy a conversation about how you build a business with soul and when do you know when enough is enough? Um, and, uh, and maybe we can get there eventually in, in our conversation because I had a lot of experience with this idea of growing a business that I really, really believed in and was a kind of reflection of, of my soul and my heart. But then I got so caught up in the growth part of it that I forgot what I really loved about it in the first place. And I, and it, you know, I think it, it, um, it always brings you back to like, why did I start this thing in the first place? And do businesses with soul really just need to maintain that core essence, you know? And so anyways, I want to get Can I talk briefly on that? Well, it's fresh. Sure. That totally happened to us. So I can a hundred percent relate to it. Like back, maybe it was, Four, five years ago, six years ago, in, in the past, in the, past. in the past, in the recent past number of years, mm. my sense of time since having children has um, become a little bit yeah. more ephemeral. But maybe totally seven bad. years ago, we borrowed a million and a half euros, and the goal was to open a number of cafes and to really try to make healthy plant-based foods more accessible. Uh, when we got the money, we kind of opened quickly. Opened one cafe, then we opened another cafe, then we opened one in the airport. Then we kind of went to a central production facility. So we opened this big. And we called it Pearville, and it's sixteen thousand square foot <laughs> cafe roastery, and we had a studio, and it was huge. And we were quite afraid of this quantum leap, but it was like this is part of growth. And then the food went from being made by a small team that really cared and knew every little bit of it to suddenly it was being run by a production manager. And it was like all about how can we reduce the cost of the inputs and how can we become more efficient and effective. And every time we'd come down to Paraville, you were meeting a new member of staff and you'd feel kind of like, wow, I wouldn't hire this person. Maybe the thing is just that we lost our way a little bit and exactly as you were saying and Mm -hmm. You know, I guess I think that's the nature of life that it's true. You know, it's a journey. It's a constant journey. And that sometimes you over oscillate and sometimes you need to come back and it's kind of that. But we're at, at, at our current phase, we're much more like small is beautiful and enough is enough is where it is. And it's to constant- enough. I, I think I don't think there's an answer for that. What is enough? Like, I really don't. Because like, you know, there's there's so many spiritual truths you could go with. Like there's there's the EF Shoemaker, small is beautiful. There's kind of going mm-hmm. like if you're not growing, you're dying. And where do you find the balance between that? Because while you exist and you're living, you need to be contributing in some way. So it's, I, I don't know where the actual balance is. We're still, we couldn't give you a definitive answer to that now. Yeah, it's a difficult metric. I think for us, we had about 170 people at our height of employment. And that point when I didn't know everybody's name, there was a, a strange discombobulation that came with that for some reason for me. Um, and, and also, you know, I don't know if you guys felt this too, but sometimes founders or visionaries, you know, are really, really good at starting things. But from an operational perspective, 
that's not necessarily where <laughs> our sweet spot is or what we're actually interested in day to day. So I, I don't know if the, you came across that too, where, oh man, you get so excited about an idea and you pour your creativity into it and you sort of grow this thing in the Petri dish and you get it out and you're seeing that people are really reacting to it. But then from taking it there to operationalizing get, gets a bit boring yeah. to be yeah, honest totally. well like even if you think about it, the, the growth from kind of small to medium-sized business like one business it's all about growth it's exciting it's leadership it's wild it's the rebel yeah. alliance and then suddenly as you kind of start getting <laughs> into the kind of couple of hundred people you need structures you need systems you need reporting lines and for someone who's naturally creative it's the naturally a rebel it's so the opposite so i remember we used to have we used to call pearville the death star and we were the rebel alliance you know we live <laughs> this is our business this is our business, own business. Yeah. this is that's what you call what, an autoimmune disease within the business so uh, you know we've, we've fortunately identified it and we've kind of uh, you know we've had the surgery and we, we've kind of learned a lot from that one nice okay so let's um Talk a little bit more about happiness, because I uh, in in researching about you guys, I um, I uh, came across Rich Roll's interview of you guys, and Rich actually lives very close to me. I see him from time to time, and I listen to his uh, podcast for inspiration from time to time. And um, on that podcast, I believe I heard this one statement that really landed with me which was the number one indicator for happiness is not money, it's health. And I was like, yeah, that, that rang particularly true. And, you know, in some ways, I, I think you could say that health and happiness are almost synonymous. So, you know, but, but happiness seems to be a much more uh, ineffable thing. It's like hard to describe. Everybody's kind of chasing it. It seems like something that's always out there. But health or well-being, we actually seem to be able to understand that a little better. So in a way of, of trying to find and instantiate happiness in our life, maybe it's easier to focus on how we actually become healthy and let happiness just be a byproduct of healthfulness. So I, I've broken down health into five components in my own life. Movement, restoration, nutrition, purpose, and community. So I want to maybe use that as, a, as goalposts a little bit for our conversation as a means to forge a path, bushwhack a path to happiness, and <laughs> kind of see how you guys approach in your own lives, um, you know, some of those categories. So let's start with movement. Obviously you guys have grown up incredibly athletic with golf and rugby, et cetera, but what are your primary movement practices? And, and I suppose swimming in the sea is probably inclusive to that too. Yeah. So, okay. Great question. Yeah. Movement, I guess, We've been fortunate in that we've, or like it's been part of our lives. So it's, it's so ingrained in us that movement, if we don't move, we don't feel good. Like it's just so, and, and this is back to our mom. Like she had four boys and she just knew we were like a pack of dogs. And the same mm -hmm. way, if you don't bring a dog out and throw a ball and make it run for a bit, it, you know, it, it can be tetchy and anxious and angry. So like right from a young age, our mom had us playing every sport under the sun because she knew I better tire these boys out. Otherwise they're just going to break the place. 
So, and even if you think about, you know, often we're asked like, where do you get your energy? What's the, what's the main food I can eat for energy? And most people are expecting, oh, it's protein or no, it's goji berries or it's like functional mushrooms or it's chaga or it's some sort of fancy hack. But unfortunately, the main answer that we give is it's oxygen. And the main way we get more oxygen is through movement. And by movement, mm-hmm. I don't mean doing iron men's or iron ladies or triathlons. It's walking. It's not very sexy, but it's literally the more like if you look to the blue zones, where they're the five area in the planet, five areas of the planet where there's the most amount of centenarians, they found out that, you know, one of the main pred- or one of the nine factors that predicated why they lived such long, fulfilled lives. It was that their environment forced them to move consistently throughout the day, whereas a lot of modern day kind of first world problems is that we we're we're stuck in in sedentary practices it's really comfortable we're stuck where you know it's yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so 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 i think where like i I think we've retrospectively learned all these things of why movement is so important and why society nowadays is set up for us to be comfortable and sedentary like you wake up you flick on light switches you make your food you get in your car you sit at a desk you do your work you come home you cook your dinner you watch netflix and then you go to the gym like whereas we're mammals, like we're absolute mammals. We forget that our biological hardwiring has evolved as we were mammals that needed to move. We moved so much to stay alive, to find food, to, we were, you know, we wandered across the plains of Africa and it was, it was baked into our DNA that we needed to move. Uh, yeah. Sorry, you want to, and even if you think about stress, stress is a, like, you know, so many people are against stress, but stress is so important as a natural biological response to keep us alive. It's designed for a mm-hmm. sharp, sharp burst of movement and if we don't like kind of embody that movement it sticks in us and it kind of builds up and it festers and it creates kind of problem and the problem is a lot of day modern a lot of modern day lifestyle encourages like long-term exposure to stress so so that's our rant on movement so and i could also say that like we're fortunate that we're physical creatures like we're very physical like some people are heady and theory and some people are heart and emotional we're physical like we even to give an analogy i remember when steve went to become a snowboard instructor at whistler there was a ramp and he was learning to do a 360 off a ramp like on a snowboard and he for it took him a full week and he, he went down this ramp and threw himself off the ramp for a full week until he nailed this move and and he got it and he finally got him to delight with himself and his friend um simon Simon, Simon watched him for a full week and uh, watched him wrecking himself off this ramp. And then Simon just got up there and his first time he did it, his very first time that he learned a completely different way. So like we're physical creatures, so movement is baked into our biology that we nowadays we're 42. We like we do yoga, we run, we like previously, I'd say the last kind of 15 years, we we, we were very into Stanga yoga. So we do a lot of that. We used to when we lived together in a we had the same we shared a house with a yoga room. And we do yoga every morning, like 6 a.m. We were like militant. We were like, we're very structured kind of people in that sense. And we do Ashtanga yoga, like military, like for 15 years, I'd say we did it. And we, we wouldn't take a break or whatever. And then we realized that we were very flexible in some ways, but quite rigid in other ways. So the last, I'd say, five years, we've really focused on a variety of different movements where we'll do animal movements or handstands or, you know, at the moment we're doing compression work, which is kind of gymnastics. It's more that playful gymnastics stuff of going, okay, I want to be able to do some of those cool moves that I see those people on Instagram doing. So we're figuring out how to do We're kind of like tracking ourselves back and figuring how to and do then we'll swim and we'll run or we'll jump. Do, but, yeah. but but i think for anyone listening i think that kind of wants to experience more more kind of physical pleasure i think movement is so baked into the the underlying 
kind of concept of wellness. And I think, you know, it's first of all, to be aware that modern day culture has set us up to be sedentary. You know, if you think about it, you know, humans, we seek pleasure, we avoid pain, and we try to do it in the most kind of energy efficient means possible. And energy efficiency typically means that we'll choose the lazy option if given it. So, but in terms of us to feel good, we have to move consistently. So I think a basic measure, because, you know, Peter Drucker, the famous management consultant, always said that what gets measured gets managed. So I think a simple <laughs> metric for anyone listening is just to aim to get 10,000 steps per day. It's very At easy. Least. And I think if you struggle to do it, a dog is a wonderful walking coach. I think social accountability is really fundamental to this. Like if you're someone that's not very motivated, arrange to meet a friend, join a walking group, just anything to kind of get you beyond yourself. Because I think collectively we're far stronger than we are independently. Yeah. Mm. And movement, I think is, sorry, no, you go, Jeff. No, I was going to say there's so much good stuff in there. So many threads I want to pull on. I mean, particularly when you talk about stress, there's this concept called eustress, E-U stress, which is good stress. Or, um, you know, Wim Hof, for example, talks about the hormetic response, which is your body's positive response to short doses of low oxidative stress. So what he does is, you know, cold hydrotherapy. And I know that you guys do that too. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about the the groups that you lead into the Irish Sea every morning. Yeah, so this is, uh, and this, this actually, I forgot to mention that in the, the movement. It was, um, so we live right in the sea. We've, we've lived on the sea our whole lives. And we used to swim in summer. We've always swam in summer. We used to jump off the harbor wall as kids and whatnot. And um, back, it was probably seven years ago. We were, we had young kids at the time. Maybe it was longer. Maybe it was eight or nine years ago. We had young kids, not together, but separately. And uh, we were, as they do, they wake up early in the morning and we were walking them around by the sea at sunrise. And, there was, um, we, we started, got in the habit of taking photos and putting them up. This is like seven or eight years ago. So we used to put it up on Twitter because that was the main platform. And people used to love sunrises. They kind of, they symbolize hope and a new dawn and all that type of stuff. So we got in the habit of having time together. It was like a romantic moment. We'd go down together. We'd watch the sunrise. We wouldn't hold hands. We wouldn't write poetry, but we'd take a photo and we'd put it on social media and we'd have chats and we'd have a couple of chats and it'd just be nice. It'd be that kind of peaceful, quiet dawn. Like that's kind of our, that was a really sacred time for us. And I remember one day we were down, it was September, probably seven or eight years ago. And there was a guy, it was, it was a kind of nasty day. It was windy. It was wild. It was a wild Irish day. And um, there was this fella in swimming and we're about looking at him going, she's lucky, your man, what a madman. And um, Steve's taking his photo. He gets his photo and your man kind of um, comes out of the water. He's wearing like a nice tight pair of budgie smugglers. And he puts a foot up on the rock, sticks his chest out and he goes, sticks his chin up to us and goes, you getting in, lads? And uh, being like Irish from all boys skills, we were like, you know, this was very susceptible to macho challenges. Yeah. And this, <laughs> yeah. this was like to us, this was like an alpha going, are you man enough? So we kind of both stood there. We banged our chest and we went, yeah. We stripped off our clothes yeah. and we jumped into the you know, sea we, in we, our loincloths. We tore our clothes off. Uh, no, no, we didn't. But uh, <laughs> we, we went in for a swim anyway and we both, um, you know, we hit the water and we got out and whatever. And your man names afterwards, he says, oh, I'm Neil. Um, and and he, he was leaving at that stage and he says, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to swim here tomorrow at the same time. I'll see you then. And we were like, yeah, of course, damn right. Yeah, we'll see you here at the same time. So um, we ended up coming back the next day. We went for a swim. We met him again. And the next day, just by chance, there was another lad on the beach. This is like at, 
you know, 6 a.m. or whatever. Another guy was in the beach there and he came over and kind of joined us. And his name was Hugo. We didn't know him at all. We didn't know Neil. And um, we, we ended up swimming. And the next day, Neil said, see you tomorrow at the same time. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. Did it the next day. And then Caroline joined the next day. And then, and then there was five of us. And then the day after that, Stephen brought tea. So now we need an excuse to stand around after, oh, geez, that was so cold. Oh, we got tea. Oh, this is lovely. Uh, and, and, you know, you talk about it's a nice day and whatever. And, and we didn't know how long we were going to swim for because this had just happened completely organically. There was no kind of intention around And there's this kind of underlying kind of belief that we're not one of those crazy people that swim in the sea all year round. But let's just see where this is going. This is something special and magical. And it's just kind of unfolding. And we kind of... October came and we got in the first day of October and we kind of joked, oh, we paid our membership for the month uh, and we'd swim them for the month. And we, it continued on. And we used to, at the time, the main social media platform was um, Snapchat. And Snapchat was quite interesting that it was very of the moment. Like I, I could take out my phone, do a little story and say, I'm having lunch at the Happy Pair in half an hour. If anyone's around, come join us. And you could come to the shop and this digital device actually connected us with real people. It was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And we used to get loads of messages in kind of saying, oh, it looks beautiful. You forgot you forgot a piece there now. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to fill in one little bit. Can I we backtrack so. a little bit? I was just going to say that, that, that time once we started swimming, that ended up being like, we ended up during the first winter and that's been for seven years now, like every day, every single day at sunrise. And it, like, it's not a fixed time. It's like, what time are you meeting at? It's sunrise. So it's in summer, it's as early as 4.50 and in winter, AM, now, that is. 4.50 AM. And then in winter, it's about 8.40 now. So it, it changes. Your morning routine has to adapt and adapt and, to, the, to the sun's rising. And to the, to, to the seasons, to the time of the year, to the moon. And little did we know, like it was one of the greatest things that happened. All that I can say is that it happened because there's so much connection with nature. You're, you're, it's almost like you're, you're being baptized every morning that you go into this, you go into mother nature and you bathe in this field of pure potentiality and it almost washes away a sense of like misery and whinging or anything. And you come out like feeling like, you know, you're just, you're stripped to your, you know, a, a, a much purer form of yourself. I, I always think it's like bathing in optimism or gratitude. It's so, there's so many days, like even last week, you're walking down, it's a manky day, it's cold. There's a northern wind that would skin you. It feels like minus one and you're going like, why am I doing this? I am crazy. And you get down and you have no motivation, but you strip off because you meet Dave or you meet Linda and Detty and it's like, okay, right, I'm getting in. And you get in and you come out going... Oh my God, I feel reborn. And you just, it's just this, like, you're just suddenly pumped. Like it's phenomenal. And then even one part of the story, which I forgot to mention was, so it started with just a few of us. It was like a little nucleus. And then little by little over time, more and more people started joining. And, you know, it's gone from where there was two and three and four and five. And probably over the first winter, it kind of made it to 10 and 15. And it's now been seven or eight years. So there's probably... 100, 150 of us that are in the kind of extended group. And now, and there's been times where there's a thousand people have joined for yeah, swims. Like if I was to tell that little tiny story, uh, as I mentioned, we were using Snapchat a little bit. And I remember we'd got enough messages coming in on social media going, oh, it looks amazing, it looks beautiful. Can I come and join you? And you knew most of those messages were coming from people lying in their bed. And it's amazing how warm and tropical Ireland can look in a two-dimensional form. But the reality is... <laughs> More often that Ireland is cold, it's windy, you know, it's by the sea, it's it's raw. And I kind of got enough of these messages in the middle of, I think it was summer. I remember going, okay, right, it was a Tuesday morning. I was there with Dave and I said, here, listen, I'm doing this. And I did a little story going, right, 
we're, we're having a sunrise swim on Thursday morning. This was on Tuesday. We're meeting at the happy pair at 4.30 a.m. And this is the big hook, free porridge and tea. And everyone's invited. And I said it to Siobhan, who was working us at the time. And she said, why don't we call it like swim rise? Because you're swimming at sunrise. But that's a great idea. Cool. And she said, I'll put it up on the other platforms. So she put it up on other platforms. And me and Dave arrived at the happy pair that Thursday morning. We arrived at 4 a.m. because we had to prepare the porridge and the tea. And we thought, ah, there'd probably be, you know, five or six of us. It'd be our brothers and maybe someone would bring a dog. But we didn't have any big pots. We didn't have any small pots. So it was like, actually, it's porridge. It's oats and water and a bit of oat milk. So we make a big pot, feck. Who, you know, let's see, we'll eat it anyway. And we walked out at 4.30 a.m. expecting it to be five, six people. There was about 150 people. And a lot of them had traveled from all around Ireland. We walked down the middle of the road. The sun rose. We went for a swim. We made love on the beach. It was magnificent. <laughs> Okay, the making love bit was a joke, but we've subsequently had ones where we've had kind of 700 people, 1,000 people, and it's really, even through the pandemic, it's become such a, yeah, such a norm. norm. Swimming, in, like when we were little, people didn't swim in the sea all year round. There was a few mad people did, but now it's normal. Like there's so many people swim in the sea on a daily basis right the way throughout winter. And we live in Ireland. We don't live in California. Like Ireland is, you've got a cold it's Irish damp. sea. And it's, it's mm. not easy. Like every day, we've been here for seven years every morning and you know it's every morning is a challenge like every morning i get down in that sea and i go why do i do this we are crazy and every morning i come out as if i've never done it before i go and i'm surprised i go oh my god that's i'm annoying i'm one of those annoying people that goes you know you should swim in the sea it's so wonderful yeah anyway yeah So Greystones, where you live, is on the east coast of Ireland, right? So you're facing east, so you're getting the sunset. I mean, I'm sorry, the sunrise as you guys are actually yeah. getting into the yeah. water. Is that right? Yeah, sweet. Yeah, so, so we actually get the sunrise like we can. Yeah. Uh, but it's funny how like when you swim in the same place 12 months a year, you're aware that the sun moves. Like you can see that during winter, it's much more round to the south so it goes right. behind the rocks. So when you're swimming, you can't actually see it rising. Whereas in summer, it rises directly over the horizon and you get these glorious mornings. Where yeah. you're like bathing in gold and just like yeah. bathing in gold. It just feels like, yeah. oh. Treasure <laughs> bath. Yeah. And, this, this, and it's ironic that like we never planned on doing this, but it's over the last number of years, there's been so much research about like Wim Hof has obviously been a huge catalyst to this in terms of cold water therapy and whatnot and nature and circadian rhythms and seeing the light in the morning. And we wouldn't right. have known any of this. We were just doing it. But it turns out just by chance that this is a really healthy thing to do. Right. Well, you were reconnecting with how humans originally evolved. And in some, in many ways, our culture has actually outpaced our evolution right now. And there's so many examples that we can point to. You know, our brains just are not evolved to be looking at screens for 12, 14 hours a day. There's all these different things. Like, you know, I just interviewed this doctor, Dr. David Perlmutter. You know, um, that, you know we used to forage uh, for food during the harvest season in the fall, and we would gorge on food. And but because our body knew that we were going moving into scarcity of the winter, 
we we would create what is known as uric acid in our body and that would be a signal for us to actually store fat so we were evolved to actually store fat as a good thing because we knew that there would be scarcity of food throughout the winter but now there's just no scarcity anymore um and so you know i think connecting to our own evolution is so important and it, and it can um, elicit these exuberant states like you're talking about, like when you get out of the water, you know, and you're just like, ah, I can, con- I can conquer the world um, because we're connecting to some part of us that is, is the true hardwire uh, of who we are. And it's pretty, I mean, it's really exciting. I think, you know, you just nailed it of like becoming comfortable with discomfort um, mm. is such a key part I think of unlocking happiness and unlocking your full potential. And to be honest, I mean, there, there, you're right. There is all of these more geeky scientific understandings of why cold therapy is good. It oxidates adipose tissue because your body has to upregulate your temperature back into this Goldilocks zone of 98.6. So your mitochondria has to burn glucose. Or in this case, if you don't have any glucose in your blood at that moment, because it's, you know, in the morning and you haven't eaten for 12 hours, then it burns fat. So it's, you know, it keeps you thin and fit and in shape. So there's all these other, you know, downstream positive impacts to it too. So and it's fantastic. And one thing, sorry to interrupt you, is that um, like when you are, when you, when you get into the sea, like the cold sea and do something like that's extreme that like it really puts out your comfort zone on a daily basis. Like as Stephen said, it like it just, you, you, you emerge as a different person, like technically, like, and this is what a, a friend who's a microbiologist, she marine says, biologist. a marine biologist, she says that like, you know, when you have a sinusitis and you often have to use saline water to clean out your nose or clean your nostrils, that's just seawater. That's just sterilized seawater. So when you get into that sea, like it literally, the cold water and the seawater literally cleans your senses. Like your your breathing improves, your hearing improves, your eyes improve. So you literally emerge like you are, like there Cleanse. is an element of rebirth in it. Like that sounds very ephemeral. But then when you do that with a consistent bunch, bunch of people, you're so, you're in such a euphoric state, you forge these friendships that are really deep and authentic. And you form this community, which is, which gives you such a sense of belonging and provides so much meaning. And that's what's really happened with us where there's like, there's this incredible bunch of people that are, they're not our, like normally you have people who are your own age and they're people that are into the same things. Like there's a lot of people who we swim with. I don't know what they do. I don't actually know what they do for their work. I don't know how they spend their day, but I'm really good friends with them. I know lots about them. Which is kind of crazy, but that's and just it's how- amazing when you when you stand with someone facing a common enemy, which is the cold sea, in a pair of swimming mm-hmm. trunks or whatever, in a bathing suit. It's amazing how you're suddenly all equal. There's no whether you're a judge, you're a doctor, you're a bin person, you're unemployed. You're all afraid of the sea, so it's amazing how it just kind of unifies, and it's very. Indig or dignified in that everyone is equal. Mm. There's no above. There's no hierarchy. It's democratic. Very, yeah, it's it's grateful. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, something is coming up for me that I've never thought about before uh, as I'm listening. Um, and so, one of the reasons, actually, why we remember trauma and why it gets stuck in us as a pattern or a samskara is that traumatic events are often marked 
with a high spike of neurotransmitters like epinephrine or cortisol or et cetera. But I've never thought about it in the more positive or optimistic way is that you can actually mark positive experiences, experiences of like community efflorescence, like you're describing with peak endorphins or, uh, or epinephrine also so that you're actually, what you're doing is you're, you're almost trapping or marking or creating synapses around positive experience with other people. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Anyways, something that just popped into my mind. It's, it's the same way that you go for a run. Like if you go for an early morning run and the sun is rising, and it's one of those magical mornings where all the stars align and you're running with someone and the conversation just flows and you yeah. reach those runner highs and you fuse that like the same way that positive emotion it, it's infused in your body you feel it biologically and it's like it's almost like it leaves an imprint on your on your physicality or whatever your yeah. spirit agreed okay let's talk a little bit about restoration and uh and all the practices associated with kind of restoring the body uh day to day whether that's meditation or sleep you know, how do you guys manage to balance or, or I guess I'd say, um, refuel your tanks, which clearly uh, are, are burning at a, at a pretty high level? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, I think it's quite a challenge in the modern day culture where it's quite, you know, it celebrates the hustler. It's kind of like, get out, make it up and be proactive. And it's only kind of in recent years that it's being more celebrated the sense of the need to restore, the need to slow down, the need to connect. But there are certain things like, say, as Dave mentioned, the sunrise changes throughout the year. And in summer, although you have to get up early and the water is warmer, you know, because you're up and you're down at the sea at 4.50 a.m., you can often sit and have tea with people for an hour, an hour and a half before anyone has even woken up. So there's this kind of natural, you're standing there, you're watching the sunrise, you're having the mm -hmm. chats and the chats are typically, you could be talking about the bird that flew by, like they're, they're the, the conversation, because you're all kind of in this nice high, high kind of slightly high state. It's just mm -hmm. great crack is what we call it in Ireland. So but you, I, I would answer mm -hmm. the question, sorry, I would answer the question in a slightly different way if I might cut you off, Steve, is that like, we're about quite Germanic in terms of like, we're structured, we're, we're quite efficient, we're organized. So like sleep has always been like, we're fortunate in that we gave up alcohol 20 years ago. We didn't mean to, we gave it up mm -hmm. for, as we said, for two weeks. And that two weeks just ended up being 20 years. We didn't really mean to. Or it is still 20 years. It still years. is 20 years. And it was really just, uh, we found we felt good and we felt more ourselves. So that's definitely helped us not get lost. And like our rhythm has been pretty, and it probably started when we started a vegetable shop. We used to get up at 4.30 in the morning to go to the fruit market. You know, we had a little red van and we have to go in and buy the veg for the day and come back. So we got used to the early mornings. So our circadian rhythm or our natural sleep chronotype is we are early, early birds. So, and as a result of waking up early, we go to bed early. So I'm, I'm like a, a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old. I go to bed typically around nine o'clock and I wake up around five o'clock. And I'm like, a, you could set my watch to come 8 p.m. I'm pretty useless. Like I'm, I'm only fit for brushing my teeth, minimal conversations, <laughs> very little focus, very little attention span. And by nine, nine thirty, like I am useless unless there's a dance on or something. 
So nice. sleep, is, sleep is something that we... Yeah, I think we've been fortunate. And typically because we are such physical creatures and so active throughout the day, we find it easier to sleep. I think to, to, to move on to the other kind of restorative practice, sense of meditation. I remember when we were traveling... I was always fascinated with the the concept of spirituality because we didn't grow, we grew up in a kind of a Roman Catholic faith and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really practiced, but you went to kind of a Christian school. So you learned your prayers and after about 16, you, you didn't have to go to mass. You were delighted, but that was kind of the general, I guess the spiritual faith that was around at the time. And I was kind of always questioned there, there has to be more. And I remember through traveling, I was kind of hitchhiking all around um, America and Canada and I remember I kind of signed up to do, I was in California. I just left Burning Man. And I remember- How long ago was this? This is 20 years ago or more. I just, I'd been at Burning Man and I stayed around for a week to help clean up. And I remember I just, one day I had enough and I just said, I'm asking for a lift um, from whoever's next. And I'm just going wherever they're going. And some fella said he was going to San Francisco. And I said, fabulous. So I found my way to San Francisco. And I remember I had two ideas in my head. I was quite conflicted. I was like, I'm either, I'd, I'd read in some magazine, maybe it was a, yeah, in a magazine about some island called hedonism, where you could go and it was like, it was like orgies. It was like seeking human pleasure, pleasure. And how far you go with human pleasure? Could you feel a more, you know, connected, rounder human being? And contrary to that, I decided I'd apply for a Vipassana meditation center. And I thought if I get one, I'll go to one. And if I get the other, I'll go to the other. And so I give it a week. And I heard back, thankfully, from the Vipassana meditation center. So I hitchhiked from... California all the way to Texas. And I did a 10 day meditation uh, retreat and I found it, I was quite, you know, I, I was kind of concerned about it, but it was phenomenal. I came out feeling like I was high on drugs, like just even having a conversation. I found it really resonated. And for a number of years, probably two, three years, we used to meditate two hours every day, even before we'd get up at half three and meditate for an hour before going into the fruit market at half four. So we were, we were very committed to it. So meditation has been something that we did stretch a huge amount for many years. And then when kids came along, not between us, but separately with our own partners, you know, it, it became harder to make time or I guess there were other responsibilities and priorities and with the growing business. But in recent years, um, we'd start like, and I say both of us, we kind of write our um, goals for the year. And previously when we were in our high achieve mode, we'd write, you know, 15 things for personal, 15 things for business. And, you know, the list would be as long as your arm. But in the last two years, it's literally been meditate more because I know if I meditate slow more, down. if I meditate mm -hmm. more, I slow down, I'm more connected, I'm not a busy fool. And I typically, you know, my relationships improve. And often, you know, if you look at the Harvard longevity, longevity study, they found it pretty much like the quality of your relationships dictate the quality of your life. So I think it's, you know, this has been... Uh, and I'm I, saying this largely to myself to remind myself that I should meditate yeah. more because today I only did 10 minutes. But, you know, some days it, it's easier and other days it's, you know, it's harder. So, yeah. So restoration, I guess it's kind of like we we're we're good with sleep. We do our best with meditation. We don't beat ourselves up. There's no like regiment or regime around it. And generally try to spend lots of time out in nature. We, we, we do spend lots of time outside and around people. Yeah. Like, I guess we're fortunate mm -hmm. in that we kind of do a job that we love and it's a, around people. So a huge amount of our day is... But maybe that's not about yeah. restoration. So okay, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So the elephant in the room, nutrition. So what are the primary reasons that you choose to be vegan now? I mean, uh, uh, you gave your Genesis story um, before, but... 
And, and I suppose this is a little bit of guidance, you know, for other people that might be considering um, moving to a plant-based diet. Um, you know, why do you find the primary reasons to to be plant-based? Well, initially, all I can say is back like 20 years ago, like we were playing semi-pro pro rugby. So we were big, you know, muscle-bound jocks that like, you know, we were programmed from an early age that steak equaled muscles, equaled man, equaled better athlete. And that was our dogma. And then we ended up going away traveling and something shifted in us. And we like, we, I think that we were, we were awakened almost to spirituality and the curiosity around that. And with that kind of catalyst, wherever it came from, we started realizing that food, like food, what I eat must have an impact on my body, on my spirit, on all these various aspects. So initially it was really the curiosity was about health. It was like, okay, if I if my body becomes healthier and purer, my spirit will become purer and I will, maybe my evolution will be better. Maybe I'll become a higher, more caring, kinder human. And this was probably the idea which we had at the start. And then as over the last kind of 20 years of doing it, we've realized that, you know, politics starts in your plate. Like what we eat on a daily basis predicates the world we want to create. And that starts with our inner world as well, because statistically 50% of the calories that we eat in Ireland, in the US, I think it's closer to 60% of the calories that people eat on a daily basis are ultra processed foods. So like mm -hmm. refined processed junk foods and, and probably 30 to 40% are animal-based foods and less than 10% are typically whole foods. And our whole kind of mantra what, is- What's a whole food, Dave? Just map it out there. Okay, yeah, so a whole food for anyone listening is, um, it's a fruit, a veg, whole grains, beans, and nuts and seeds. So it's, it's really those five kind of groups. And you're kind of talking about plant-based foods in their natural form. So that's kind of what a whole food is. And, um, and if you look at the blue zones, the longest living people on the planet that typically live long, fulfilled lives, 95% plus of their diet is made up of whole plant foods. So our mantra is really less about vegan and, you know, vegan, we, we obviously have eaten a vegan diet for 20 years. And still do. And still do. But that word is very binary. That word puts people yeah. off as much as it brings people in. So our message really is not about vegan. It's about trying to encourage whoever you are to eat more whole foods. Because if I was eating a vegan diet, I, for ethical reasons, I could eat vegan magnums, vegan chocolate hot bars. dogs, vegan chocolate bars, vegan donuts, and I had a vegan burger for lunch. Woohoo! I'm a vegan, but I'm not really healthy. Yes, I am contributing to a healthier climate. I'm contributing less impact on animals. But ultimately, for my own health, I'm not necessarily consuming the optimum fuel to sustain my body. Whereas you know, leading research and even from our own experience, we've had over 50,000 people through our courses. We've partnered with like gastroenterologists, cardiologists, bariatric GPs, so lots of different doctors and specialists in their field. We've seen the simple thing by eating a whole food plant-based diet and how it can heal so many different can I, can I tell us? Can I tell a story on this, Jeff? Yes, please. Okay. So, so as we said, we like, me, remember when we, like back when we were starting our happy <clears throat> pair story, Steve said like, he wanted to start a health food revolution. And back, I'd say it was a good 10 years ago, we were kind of, you know, we were, Steve was cooking in the kitchen, in the cafe. I was working in the vegetable shop and, you know, we were ticking along. And this is, this is 10 years ago. So, and we were eating a plant-based diet. And I remember one day a lady came into the shop and she said, um, 
she said she'd lost two stone on Weight Watchers. And stone is, you know, it's a, an old kind of Irish UK metric of she'd lost loads of weight on Weight Watchers. And About I was 20 kilos, 20, something like that. Anyway. Kilos, I think. And I was like, wow, brilliant. Great job, Mary. And, um, and, and Steve was there and I said, she's Steve, like she'd left. And I said, Steve, like people love measuring the improvement to their health. They love being able to quantify things. And um, Steve says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, I wonder, could we do that? Like, could we do something that we could like test put a plant-based diet to the test and measure people's improvement in their health. Yeah. So, and I was reading this book, this is like 10 years ago. I'm reading a book by Dean Ornish, who you probably know, Dr. Dean Ornish. Mm -hmm. He was, it was one of his books and I was reading this and it was about the lifestyle heart trial where he had showed over a year that when you put people on a, on a whole food, minimally processed diet for a year, a lot of the indicators for heart disease were reversed. And so I'm reading this book and Steve goes like, you know, that book you're reading by that doctor lad, like, could we just do that? Like, why don't we try that? Let, let's see, like, let's see what happens. So it was like, great idea, Steve. So that Monday morning, we walked straight down to the local doctor, Brendan Cuddy in our little town. We knock on Brendan's door and we go, how are you, Brendan? Uh, we're the lads in the happy pair. We want to reverse heart disease. Do you know any nurses? And he says, Jesus, lads, you're in luck. Angela's next door. So we knock on Angela's door and we go, how are you, Angela? We're the lads in the happy pair. We want to reverse heart disease and we need a nurse. Will you help us? And she said, hallelujah. No, she didn't. She said, how much are you paying me? We said 50 quid. And she said, I'm in. Yeah. So we had a nurse. <laughs> and, and this is 10 years ago. So it was pre-social media. So we literally, we created posters. And we put these posters on lampposts and on notice boards around the town and in the local church bulletin saying, reverse heart disease, skinny, sexy, delicious, free. And we had 20 people to sign up to our little experiment. And they came along the first night and Angela, the nurse, measured everyone's cholesterol levels, their weight and their blood pressure. So we had three starting measurements. And this is in a vegetable shop in a little town in Ireland. And so we brought everyone upstairs to the cafe upstairs, the room up there. And as chefs, we kind of realized like this, this is normal Irish people, meat and two veg. And we wanted to put them on a plant-based diet for four weeks. So we cooked loads of food. We got them to taste it. To taste lentils and to taste what a chickpea is. And, and, and we cooked rice. And we cooked really nice food and they taste, they go, that's not too bad. Like, okay, so so I've got to eat a plant-based food for four weeks. Okay, okay. And people people were up for it. They were like, okay, great. And we put on videos of doctors just to show that there was science behind it, that this actually yeah. wasn't just me and Dave on a whim. And this this is, you know, uh, they came once a week for four weeks and each each night night was like vegetable AA. It was like everyone came along and they discussed the, how difficult it was and how it was and where did they get the lentils and blah, blah, blah. And it was, and we cooked food every time. It was a real support group. And the last night they came back again and me and Steve obviously didn't know it was going to work. And like, we really didn't. We were both, we thought if this doesn't work, we're going to have to, you know, get a job in a bank or we're going to have to do something else because this, this underpins everything I believe in. Um, but thankfully there was an average drop of cholesterol at 20%, weight loss, blood pressure dropped. Um, you know, people were, were amazed by it. And this for us was massive validation. So we ended up, you know, doing more of these courses and the local, the Irish newspapers wrote articles on it and it got too busy. It got way too busy where we, we were kind of being asked to not do our day job and just do this. So it was like, no, I don't want to do this. I love going to the market. I love cooking in the kitchen. So we built an online course. And this was, this was back uh, eight or nine years ago where people didn't like put their credit cards in the internet. And, um, we, and we built this course. We thought it had cost us two grand or a few grand and it cost us, you know, hundreds of grands and, and, and no one bought it. And then it took time and then eventually it took off and we partnered with doctors and dietitians. But it's they really it, like heart disease is the biggest killer in the world. It accounts for more than 50% of all deaths. 
And, uh, you know, in, in many cases, what you eat has, has the biggest determinants on it. Yeah, brilliant. And one thing that I don't think a lot of people connect is also what you eat and your mood. Um, where, you know, I, I read this really interesting article and then subsequently did a bunch of research. Uh, and this goes back to the microbiome. But when you're eating fiber rich, plants, those are essentially prebiotics that are feeding the bugs in our gut that then produced what are known as postbiotics or short chain fatty acids. And there's, you know, a, a number of them that people have heard about, but butyrate, potentially the most famous short chain fatty acid. And, um, but these upregulate your mood. And then there's also like particular um, bacteria. I think it's like a lactobacillus ruteri, which ap- actually helps to um, stimulate the creation of oxytocin. Or, you know, I've read that 80% of the serotonin, the sort of feel good um, neurotransmitter, is actually made in your gut. So there's so many reasons, you know, from uh, obviously mitigating some of the risks associated with heart disease, uh, diabetes, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, cancer, you know, all of the inflammatory oriented chronic diseases. There seems to be just overwhelming evidence. Um, study after study seems to point to the efficacy of of a plant based whole foods diet, and and I love that you guys aren't like fundamentalist or dogmatic about it because I think you're right. You kind of come in, you know, guns a blazing on some of this stuff, and people are like, "Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute," um, because everyone has grown up in a particular kind of environment and culture that you know celebrates certain kinds of foods as part of their culture. So in some ways, this is just like a grab process um, of uh, getting people to try new things and experiment with, like you say, with legumes and chickpeas and lentils and this kind of uh, phantasmagoria of, of, um, of, of whole foods, fruits, vegetables, etc. So there's just so much there. Um, and I think what you guys have also tapped into is like the joy of it, the joy of the creation of the creation around it. Totally. And, and even if you look at the American Gut Project, which is a piece of research that came out last year, I think it was around 30,000 people as part of the study. But they found out the single biggest thing that you can do to improve your gut health, which where 70% of your immune system exists, is to eat a whole like fiber rich foods. And there right. was a magic number that not only was it about eating fiber rich foods, it was about eating a diversity of fiber rich foods. And they found that the magic number was that if you could consume 30 different types of fruit and veg, legumes, whole grains, or nuts more. and seeds, or more. It was where you went from having kind of a a functioning microbiome to suddenly having this high functioning microbiome. And microbiome is often seen as kind of like like the control center of so much of your biological function. So I think for anyone listening, just try to eat more fruit and veg, whole foods, nuts and seeds. And it's not an all or nothing thing. It's just baby steps. There was one piece of the puzzle there, Steve forgot to mention, like fiber is like, as we're mentioning, like it is a prebiotic and it's, it's absolutely essential to the health of your microbiome, but you only get fiber in whole plant foods. You don't get it mm-hmm. in processed foods. You don't get it in meat. You don't get it in dairy. And most of the world is going around obsessed with protein. Some are taking protein to build muscles, some are taking protein to lose weight. And but like 97% of the population on the planet get more than enough protein unless they're not getting enough calories. Whereas 
97% of the population do it's not... It's about 90. About 90% of the population do not get enough fiber on a daily basis. So that's really an indicator that most people listening probably aren't eating enough whole foods. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's a myth about protein. There's this idea that we're going to eat a steak and then it's going to magically appear as a bicep. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, of course, our bodies synthesize protein on the cellular level. And really what we just need to get from our nutrition or from our exogenous diet are these nine essential amino acids. Our body makes 12 of them uh, endogenously. Um, and those, those amino acids, the building blocks for protein are available in plants everywhere. I mean, and there's, you know, quinoa, which is actually, I believe a complete protein that has all the essential amino acids and many mushrooms do. Uh, but you can eat a plant-based diet and get plenty of protein. So, that idea that you have to that protein is confined to you know poultry or or red meat is a, just a complete and utter myth. And you guys have done a great job, I think, at, at helping dispel that. Mm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, purpose and community because those are the uh, and I, I can see these as intertwined a bit. So that's why I might. Um, put them within the same parentheses uh, and you can feel free to sort of flow between them. But how do you guys define purpose and, and where do you find your purpose and meaning in your life day to day? I think purpose is a tough one to pin down. I think community yeah. is an easier one to start with because we're naturally social creatures. And I think nowadays we're living in theoretically a more connected um, life than ever before. But yet loneliness is an epidemic. It's nearly a pandemic of loneliness at the moment. Even if you look at in the United Kingdom in 2018 at governmental level, they appointed, you know, the way there's the minister for health and there's the minister for the, the foreign economics affairs. and foreign affairs, they appointed a minister for loneliness because they found out that approximately 15% of the population were struggling with loneliness. And loneliness isn't the absence of people around you. It's the absence of belonging. So I think nowadays we're kind of, we're starved for this and even more so through this pandemic. So many of us are starved from this face-to-face -face friendship. Even if you look at studies done in the kind of 1960s, uh, it was in America. What was the name of the guy? The environmentalist Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben. Yeah. So he mm -hmm. can ask people um, at a time of crisis, how many people can you call and turn to and know that they will come and help? And in the 1960s, the average the 70s. it was the 70s. The, 90, the the average answer was five people. Versus nowadays, when they ask the same question, the average answer is zero. So unfortunately, we've been trading. You know, having more material pleasures and more material comforts at the expense of having friendship and people that will, you know, mind us when we're struggling. And ultimately, that's what we need. If you think about as humans, we evolved along the Sahara of Africa and we survived not because we were the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, but we survived because we had the ability to coordinate and function together as one. And it was only natural that when we became isolated, we were anxious, we were nervous, we were, we were afraid because something could, could come and eat us at any moment. So it's, it's hardwired into us that we're not built to be lonely. Even if we're an introvert, we have a need to belong. So, so yeah, so I think community connect, like community is probably our sweet spot in that and gives us a great sense of purpose. Yeah, yeah. like we, we, we still live in the same little town which we grew up on, which incidentally 
back this month that won the most livable community in the world, under 20,000 people um, in the recent Livecom Awards in Egypt. So it's a uh, community has been like we've had our business in the middle of the town and having lived there our whole lives, we know a lot of people. So you walk down the street and you just say hello to everyone. And there's so much, you know, so many of these loose social, inter, so, loose social connections, which are believed to be just as important as well as your social, your immediate social network, like your friends and family, so you can count on, but your loose social ne- connections are just as important for your well-being, your happiness. That's the kind of, that you can say hello to, oh, how are you, John? How's the match? Oh, did you see see Liverpool? They won last night or whatever. Like, you don't know who John is. You don't really know much about him, but you, you both enjoy saying hi to one another. And the same way the person who makes your coffee, how are you, Jack? How are you getting on at university? You know, whatever it is. Those little things are just as important as those those kind of deep connections because it, it really imbues that sense of belonging, which is fundamental, I think, to human happiness yeah. and safety and all of those various and things. And if you, if you go back to the blue zones where the five areas of the planet where this is the longest living people, and if they boil down the nine factors that predicate why they live such long, healthy lives, the number one most important factor for longevity is not what you eat. It's not having wine at five. It's not faith. It's community. It's social connection. We are social creatures. It is so like fundamental. Like we've seen people who eat a perfect raw food, vegan diet, uh, you know, and they only pick their kale at a full moon, et cetera, et cetera. But so many of them can be miserable. No amount of kale can heal a poor self-image. And I think community is so fundamental to rounding our edges, to helping us become more accepting, more loving, more caring, and more more part of a tribe. I think I, I think that wonderful expression that Malcolm X, I believe, said that the more we move from illness, which starts with an eye, to wellness, the more we're moving more towards health. And I think it was, you know, there was a, another lovely story where there was a yogi at a lecture was asked, what's the difference between illness and wellness? And he simply picked up the chalk, walked to the board, circled the I in illness and circled the we in wellness and walked in and said nothing else. So I think community really is at the essence of wellness. And I think when you break it back to like some, so many of the, you know, the, the issues with modern living, like if we all had that sense of connection and those, you know, more thriving local communities, I think the world would be a very different place. Yeah. And even if you think, sorry, one last kind of bit, even if you think about like nowadays in social media, there's more and more trolls and bullying happening, but there's so little of it happens face to face. If you actually met the person face to face, you wouldn't say the things you say because you realize that. They're a sensitive human like yourself and a flawed human. So I think the more, the more, the more we can remember to live our life in the kind of flesh, the more, and that sense of togetherness, I think the more we become rounded, happier, wholesome humans. I agree. It's hard to hate up close. You know, I, um, I, I got into this little pattern in the summer of 2020 where anytime I would get into uh, a skirmish w- with someone over something that I might have posted, I would suggest a Zoom call. And, <laughs> um, and it really took a lot of bravery for the people that took me up on it. Um, but over the course of the summer of 2020, uh, I had about 20 of these extended Zoom calls uh, with people that didn't agree with me about something that I said. And wow, where'd they go? Unbelievable. I mean, at the end of the day, what almost always happened is we just started talking about our life stories and then we found 
com- commonality and shared humanity in, within our stories and whatever. We, we completely forgot what the issue was that we started with. <laughs> and a lot of these people then became, you know, good friends and, you know, we share memes and, you know, jab each other just like, you know, like, like old friends might. So, you know, I think that that really is a point that this kind of what's happening on social media Although you guys leverage social media to bring people together in real life, which is one of the greatest attributes about social media, but often what's happening there is 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 public acts really, but happening in private, and it's not about community at all. In fact, you know, I, I think one of the things that you guys are getting at, which is really interesting, is that you know we're more likely to know someone's Instagram handle that lives halfway around the world. Than, than we are our neighbor's name. And yeah. I, uh, you know, and hear you guys talking about the Blue Zones very often and then thinking about what you're doing in Greystones. I, I wonder if that could be a dream of actually making Greystones the sixth Blue Zone, which yeah. could be interesting. Um, but I think, you know, I'd love to just kind of excavate where you guys are in terms of your work and your creativity with regards to your local place. Because when you talk about fostering and cultivating community, what you really are talking about is something local. Like, and, um, and so maybe you can talk about your ambition and all these ideas of growth that we were kind of alluding to earlier and how they relate to Greystones in your local place, because you're living in the place where you guys grew up. Yeah. Do you mind if I have a quick go? No, no, go for so it. I was just going to say that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's so important, the need for local and like it's easy to reinvent yourself if you move to a different city and whatever and become a different person. But when you're in the same place which you've lived your whole life, people hold you to certain standards, which is good and bad. You know, it, it can be great in so many ways. But in terms of our mission and our purpose, we've just, um, we're in the process of signing a deal to buy four acres of land and start a community farm. So mm. uh, we work with our brothers, our four brothers, and Dara is, he kind of runs the, the business now because as you said, as founders, you're not very good at the operation. We've realized that a number of years ago and our brother Dara is very good at that kind of stuff. So him and Paul kind of run the, the bulk of the company and Dara's always been a farmer. He originally got involved with the happy pair. You know, obviously it was back when we were, he was 17. So he was washing pots and it was money, but very soon on he realized that there's very little Irish vegetables. You know, there's, it's, it's cheaper to buy veg from Holland than it was from Ireland. So very early on, he kind of wanted to start growing more veg. So he started a sprout farm, growing microgreens and wheatgrass and sprouts back a good decade so ago. So sprouts anyway. like alfalfa, fennel, fenugreek. Broccoli, all these kind of super nutritious microgreens. But it's always been his dream to have a farm. So um, hopefully by the end of this month, we'll have a four acre farm, which is going to be a community farm. He wants mm. to use it as an example to be of what you can do in four acres in terms of he wants to be very open in terms of the finances, the numbers, the crops. So it can serve as a model for other people that want to start farming in four acres, because as the world continues in the path that it is, it's much more likely that we're going to need a lot more local food because if systems break down in any sense, we are all dependent on these global models. So the more local foods we can have, the more resilient we can be. So part of Dara's dream is to have, uh, to make it a really explicit model so others can learn about it. 
it wants to be a, a farm for local communities so that people in our town can be part of the farm. They're, they're, they understand what foods grow in certain seasons, like foods don't grow in the supermarket. You know, we obviously know that, but like, I think many of us who shop in the supermarket, you don't really think of where the food grows or how it's grown or we're very disconnected from food. So we really want to make this experience more real in terms of getting these families up to the farm once a month or a couple of times, a number of times a year so they can actually see what it's like or work on the farm for a day. or And, and to get kind of students, school people, disadvantaged We, we people. have loads of dreams with it. So we'll see how all that unfolds. It, but it's, it's going to be organic and regenerative. So it's going to be focusing on not necessarily, not tilling the soil to kind of release carbon, but where we're actually just sowing the seeds directly into the soil. So it'll be, it, it, and largely kind of run by hand tools as opposed to needing big tractors or, you know, heavy machinery. So it's, it's a wonderful project, but I guess the whole purpose of our business was to create social change. And one of the main selfish reasons why we started The Happy Pair was when we came back from traveling and we had changed our diet and lifestyle so much, we didn't know and have a community that would support us. So we decided, let's start a business that kind of espouses these beliefs and let's attract other people and build a community around it. So it's been an incredibly selfish pursuit, but it's been remarkably, you know, worthwhile and um, enjoyable in so many different and, ways. And even in terms of, so we've got the farm. Uh, last September, we started a project in a local school where we, we have this uh, online program called Happy Mind, where we have, you know, we've a, a psychologist and ourselves and there's a performance coach and, and it's very much about putting into practice over four weeks what we're talking about really and we did this program last I think it was March and we had a thousand people or more through it and it was really good it was great it was great fun and great results so we kind of thought okay well um, there was a friend who's a teacher in a local school said that like the students were really struggling with corona with COVID and morale anxiety stress and all those things so we said okay well let's see if we can put this if we can put this into a skills program so we bought we kind of talked to the local school we talked to the local kind of education body and they said okay let's do an experiment so we bought I think it was 120 smartwatches to measure their steps and the whole idea was to measure steps to measure the amount of food like amount of veg they eat in a day and it was to measure how much time they spent on phone usage and then the tracker Mm. was going to track their sleep as well so it was four measurements it was done over four weeks we they did questionnaires at the start and questionnaires at the end and we came in once a week in our food truck and we served them all soup. So it was a, and then they had two hours a week where we had videos playing. So it was, it, it, it was going to be a pilot for hopefully if this worked, we'd do it in multiple schools for the next one. And then maybe around Ireland and who knows where it would go. And the first one, we did it in September and it was highly successful. There was um, great take up and huge improvement in terms of moods, in terms of sleep, in terms of the awareness. And uh, yeah, so hopefully we do more of that. Yeah, beautiful. I, I just had um, tea with this woman who runs uh, a, a, an organization called Denver Urban Gardens. And so over the last two years, really during the pandemic in, in the United States, they've built 190 community gardens in and around the Denver metropolitan area in, in Colorado. Wow. And similarly, um, cause she was very, very interested in the relationship between, uh, mental health and community, uh, particularly, you know, in the setting of gardening, when people are off their phones, et cetera, and they're getting their hands dirty and they're naturally having to help each other out. And, uh, so she ran a study as they were building these 190 gardens, which I'm anxiously awaiting the data on 
um, uh, monitoring mental health um, and its relationship to community and gardening. So um, I'm really uh, I'm I'm looking forward to sharing that on the podcast when she's got that data um, ready. But I think we all have an instinct of where what that's going to show, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and if you think about nowadays, like where as a society we're more and more disconnected, and I think at the root mm. of all economies is food and we're living in this globalized mm. food system where we don't know we're eating food out of season we don't know where it's grown we don't know who grew it but you know back even if you think back you know back even post-world war one in the u.s they used to have victory gardens and people used to really they knew their veg they knew the farmers they knew the land we weren't getting into this kind of you know kind of mass production model of farming where it's Mono, using monocultures whereas i think the the move towards this kind of local gardeners i think is kind of almost an act against modern pop culture that can connect us um you yeah. know to, to our food source to the world to give us a sense of purpose a sense of meaning and i think it's it's so accessible. We just have to start doing it. And through getting our hands in the soil, we improve our microbiome. Through spending times in nature, we're more relaxed. We make friends. We eat better. It's such a positive, virtuous cycle. Yeah, I always look at it. Um, you know, this is a, an indication, a symptomatic indication of where the world has gone off the rails when the butter that I buy at the grocery uh, is the butter from New Zealand is cheaper than the butter that I buy from the farmer's market who is local. Oh, that's and crazy. So, you know, I think what one of these things that we've all seen are the ills of globalism and mechanization and monocropism, et cetera. This world where the world is increasingly flat, you know, with you know, fewer kinds of crops and fewer kinds of animals, et cetera. What we want is this really kind of diverse, bushy bell curve, if you will, um, that really kind of signifies the most vibrant and vital kind of society. You know, when when we spoke last week, and you guys were kind enough to have, have me on your podcast, we, we touched a little bit on um, this idea of moving back to the local and um, it, it brought up this verse of the Tao Te Ching. So the Tao Te Ching was written by this Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu this fellow that was supposedly born with a white beard. I love that fable. Born <laughs> old. Um, and, um, and, and, and this guide, it's 81 verses. And it's really sort of a, a guide explaining the foundational intelligence of the universe and how we can order society in, in, in the best possible way. And at the very, very end, the second to last verse, the 80th verse of the Tao, I actually wrote it here on the side of my screen. It's a little tiny bit long, but not that long, but I want to read it because I feel like it's cones in on exactly what we're talking about. So I'll, I'll go through it really quickly. Imagine a small country with few people. They enjoy the labor of their hands and they do not waste time inventing labor-saving machines. 
since they dearly love their homes. They're not interested in travel. Although they have boats and carriages, they are rarely used. Although there may be weapons, nobody ever uses them. They are content with healthy food, pleased with simple clothing, satisfied in snug homes. People take pleasure in being with their families, spending weekends working in their gardens and delighting in the doings of the neighborhood. Although the next country is close enough that they can hear their roosters crowing and dogs barking, they are content to to leave each other in peace. <laughs> that was written 2,500 years ago. I mean, wow. you know, the wisdom there is... Uh, Jim is almost like Ching. Tai Tai Ching. Normally, like verses from that can be very slightly cryptic and more spiritual, whereas that is very tangible and very like maybe the last couple of verses they get very practical. Certainly, a lot of the ones that I've read previous they can be a bit of a conundrum, a spiritual conundrum. Whereas that is so easy to understand and and in our limit, like, in our limited experience, you know, we're we're forty two, but I think you know, like globalization, we've all experienced or we're all experiencing now. And, you know, there are certain elements that are working wonderfully, but by and large, as humans, there's a lot of dissatisfaction. There's a lot of emptiness, not loneliness. It's not necessarily feeding our souls. We're kind of like hungry ghosts, as we spoke about last time we chatted. And I think the more we can move and celebrate that sense of local, the sense of we, the sense of connecting and stewardship for the land, I think the more we're moving towards happier humans. exactly as as it said there as Lai Su said there that the more we can use our hands and get back into our bodies and as you said instead of spending 12 hours in a screen like learn to build learn to build learn to play learn to be creative with all these various things and get your hands in the soil and grow stuff grow food that you're going to eat it then you're not going to waste it you know these and maybe we'll be forced to go that way at some stage if we keep destroying things but um hopefully we get there sooner yeah well in closing, I want to give you guys the opportunity to talk about uh, another upcoming book that you have. You guys are just prodigious in your in your output, um, and we spoke a little bit about this before we jumped on. But I thought it was uh, prescient because we've had folks on the show like Paul Hawken who addresses issues like food waste. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming book? Yeah, so this this was very much on the exact same thing that Paul Hawken talks about. Like one of the biggest impacts on climate change is food waste. Thirty percent. Well, of first of all, it's food, and then food waste. Food and food waste, and thirty percent mm-hmm. of all food is typically wasted in every domestic household, and that's typically a statistic across the full planet. So that's thirty percent of the food in your house. So we've written a book which is based around the 10 most used vegetables in your home. So instead of it being breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we've taken the 10 most common fruit and veg or vegetables, really. We've done them 10 ways using 10 ingredients so that like you've got a few wonky carrots in your fridge and you're thinking of throwing them out. Like for say, for example, carrots, we've got carrot soup. We've got, you know, carrot muffins, carrot granola, carrot flapjacks, Carrot fritters, carrot You know, we've really pushed everything to its limits using only 10 ingredients. And the whole core of it is to try to make you waste less, to make it simple to apply. This is our sixth book. And over six books, we've realized things have to be so pared back for people to use it. So we've got 10 ingredients or less per recipe. And it's been the most creative book that we've had to do because... 
like with great boundaries, it forces you to be extremely creative and focused. And even if you think about research from the University of Oxford in 2018, they were trying to find out what was the single biggest thing the individual could do in terms of climate crisis. And, you know, many people think it's, oh, it's not flying or it's buying an electric car. Yes, yes, I need an electric car. It's solar panels. But they found that the single biggest thing the individual could do was to eat a vegan or a plant-based diet. So I think the goal of this book is not only to reduce food waste, but to encourage everyone listening to eat more whole foods. And it's, it's called The Veg Box. It's available for pre-order on Amazon if anyone's interested. And I think it comes out in June. June. So, so yeah. excited. I, I will just say personally, when I open the fridge and, and the larder is low and you have to make something with little and you do it. It is so fulfilling. You know what I mean? You're like, I, A, you get the fulfillment of actually not wasting anything and using something. And then also the creativity of having to pull something together. So you give us some, uh, some guidelines to, uh, to propel our creativity along. So I'm looking forward to that. And I just want to thank you guys for everything you're doing. You really are leading the revolution from the front. front. You guys are the tip of the spear. You're living it. Um, it, it's not just words, it's actions every day. And those actions are uh, accomplished with effusiveness and exuberance. That is a contagion. Um, uh, <laughs> nice word. Yes, you are spreading the good virus, I will say, every day. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And uh, I really look forward to breaking bread with you guys, either over there or in Topanga. You guys have an open door policy uh, uh, (laughs) on the commune there. So um, I hope to be able to put together some kind of event or just even just kick back and uh, we can go into the Pacific Ocean. I, I guarantee it's a little um, a little warmer than, than the Irish Sea. Wonderful. Wonderful. We look forward to genuinely. So, yeah, likewise, we really, really look forward to breaking bread. I think that's a really nice. Yeah, we have a sourdough bakery, so we can break really good quality bread. It's great. It'd be really fun. And on the topic of building, I've got like, we bought an old house, myself and my wife, last year, and I've been doing it up. I've been really learning the art of building. And this summer, we've got a project down at the end of the garden. There's an old building, and I want to turn that into an office and a studio. So we will, at the end of this summer, we will have a studio partner at the end of the garden, and you're more than welcome to come stay in that, Jeff. So there you go. Nice, nice. Well, I have three daughters, so be careful what you. Uh, what you <laughs> They're all welcome. Fabulous, more than merrier. Yeah. Right on. All right, love you guys. Cheers, Thank you, Jeff. Love you too. Gotcha. All right, to be continued. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dave and Steve Flynn. To keep abreast of their work and whereabouts, check out thehappypair.ie. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into the creation of the show. We really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows 
where I'm going to spend the first 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>